This morning we're in uh, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11 again. Uh, I don't know why I didn't put the pages in the worship guide, but that's page 1165 if you're looking for it. Uh, Philippians 2, we're spending several weeks in this passage using it as a gospel primer. There's three essential elements uh, to the gospel message. Who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and what it means for us. Or if you want to shorten it even more, you could say his identity, his mission, and his call. Two weeks ago when we looked at uh, this passage, we asked, who is Jesus? Who does this passage tell us that Jesus is? And it tells us Jesus is fully God. Eternally, he is in the very form of God. But also that Jesus is fully human, that the eternal Son of God emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. Jesus is God from eternity, not a second God alongside the Father, but one God along with Father and Spirit, blessed Trinity. And he be, but he becomes human in the course of history. And yet from that moment, from the moment that Jesus is conceived in the Virgin Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit, from that moment onward, the Son, of Man, uh, the Son of God is always also the Son of Man, fully God, fully human. That the Son of God became a man for us brings us to the second essential element of the gospel message, why Jesus came, his mission. That's what we're going to look at this week. Here now the reading of God's word, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, as Paul presents this uh, in this succinct passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in, the for in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Here in uh, Philippians 2, Paul draws to our attention three aspects of Jesus' mission. It's a short passage. It doesn't say everything that we could say about Jesus' mission, but it says three essential things, three aspects. Jesus came as our example. Jesus came to make atonement. And Jesus came to win a great victory. Jesus came as our example to make atonement and to win a great victory. First, Jesus came as our example. Jesus came as our example. Remember, Paul's meditation on Christ here is embedded within a larger paragraph that is about the sort of mindset that Christians ought to have. This mindset is rooted in the character of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is love 
who is radically other-centered. And as we experience the comfort and encouragement in Christ, comfort from the Father's love, participation in the Spirit, we grow into a properly Christian mindset that Paul describes in this way in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty glory, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul's larger point in this paragraph is that we too are meant to have an other-centered mindset. The properly Christian mindset is characterized by humility, by thinking of others before ourselves, by looking after others' interests and needs. And then Paul links this instruction up with Christ's own story, Christ's example in verse 5. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Christ is the paradigm, the model, the example of the humble mindset that Christians ought to have. Even more than that, Christ is the character of God translated into human form. This is what it truly and most fully means to live a godly life. It's a life characterized by God's own character. And What then is Christ's example that he sets for us? He was in the very form of God. He shares in God's glory. And yet he doesn't consider that equality something to be grasped after or held onto or used for his own benefit. Instead, he takes what's best and greatest and most valuable and he freely gives it up in the interest of others, for the sake of others. He empties himself by taking the form of a servant. Here is a picture of the God of self-giving love lived out in human form. God's own character is seen in the Son of God pouring himself out, becoming a servant, dying on the cross. This is what God is like. And therefore, this is what a godly life looks like. Let this sink in for a minute. The King of glory becomes a servant. The God of heaven comes to earth, and not just to earth as a king, but in a manger, born to poor people in a poor province in the backwaters of Rome. He who was rich became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. This striking paradox, this unexpected glorious truth, let it sink in for a moment. And yet, Paul says it should be an example for us. So how do we use our resources? How do we use what we have, our skills, and what's valuable to us? Well, the message of the world is quite clear. You use your resources to make a better life for yourself, to look after your own interests. You invest them for your good and the good of your family. Oh, we might give to charities and volunteer and help others when we can, but are we willing to use our resources to help others in a way that actually hurts our own standard of living? Christ, who is rich, became poor. That's not just not driving quite as new of a car as he could or something like that. It's actually changing from being rich to becoming poor. Are we willing to use our resources in that sort of a radical way that it actually affects how we live?
And what is Jesus' motive? This is not to become famous. Okay, he's not trying to become another Mother Teresa that everybody knows about for his humility. It's not some kind of out-of-the-box thinking, a sort of back way to power. He already had power. He already had glory. His name was already known throughout the earth as the God who created all things. No, he does it for our sake. And verse 11 says he does it to the glory of God the Father. Christ takes the form of a servant for our sake and to bring glory to God the Father. This is radical humility. Reflecting on uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, this whole paragraph here, Gordon Fee summarizes, in Paul's ethic, the principle is love, the pattern is Christ, the power is the Spirit, and the purpose is the glory of God. The principle is love, the pattern is Christ, the power is the Spirit, the purpose is the glory of God. There's Christian ethics in a nutshell. Here is our great example, the paradigm of humility, the pattern for the mindset Paul urges on us. He says, be like Christ. Have the same mindset among yourselves. Be Christ-like in the way you think of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty glory, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Why did Jesus come? He came as an example to show us what a godly, humble life looks like. But he didn't only come as an example, and that is of central importance. 19th century liberal theology said Jesus was just a good man who gave us an example of what a good life looks like. But if that's all that Jesus does is gives us an example, it's actually crushing, not good news. Who can live up to his example? If this is all we have as an example, live like Christ and then you'll be accepted by God. Who has a hope? Not one of us. But we're not left on our own to try and live up to his examples if somehow by our own resources we can live a perfectly obedient life and so be right with God. And so this leads us to the second aspect of Jesus' mission. Jesus came to make atonement. Jesus came to make atonement. In verse 4, Paul says this mindset that Jesus exemplifies is looking to others' interests. The Son of God became a servant because it is in our interest. He considered us more significant than himself, than himself, and so he became a servant and he was obedient to the point of death for our sake. The Son emptied himself so that we might gain. He became poor so that we might become rich. Jesus came to make atonement, to do something for us. If he didn't do anything for us, how is his life an example of, of doing something in our interest? Atonement is one of the few important theological words which is originally coined in English. Uh, it literally means at one. To atone is to make two things at one. To reconcile, to make unity. Of course, in the case of Christ's atonement, it means to reconcile God and humanity. To make God and humanity uh, a, a unity where previously there was enmity. To reconcile God and man. To restore broken relationship. What kind of relationship does God want to have with humans? 
Well, from Genesis onward, when God calls people into a relationship with him, he establishes a covenant with them. Abraham, Jacob, Israel, David, God establishes covenants with his people. What is a covenant? It's a committed, binding relationship. The heart of the covenant is this. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk before me in my ways, in the ways I command you. I will be your God. You will be my people who walks in my ways. That's the heart of the covenant relationship. God giving himself to his people and calling his people to give themselves to him in obedience. Well, Jesus came to make atonement by establishing this kind of covenantal unity between God and humanity. The 20th century Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance comments, Jesus came to fulfill the covenant will of God, both from the side of God, fulfilling all the promises of God to his people, and from the side of man, walking in all the ways that the people were commanded to, and as such to be the servant of the Lord in mediating a new covenant. The promises of the covenant are fulfilled in him, in the ultimate gift of God's very self to man. The commands of the covenant are fulfilled in him in the obedience of the Son of Man. This realization of the covenant will and faithfulness of God in Christ is atonement. Atonement in its fullest sense embraces the whole incarnate life and work of Christ. Jesus comes to make atonement, to make at one God and man by fulfilling both sides of this covenant. To be the God of the promise to humanity and to be the obedient servant of the Lord towards God. And we see this dual mission in Philippians 2. The God side of the covenant, Paul puts succinctly. He sets out this spectacular truth that Jesus Christ is God become man for us in our midst. This is the great Advent truth. That although he is fully God in the form of God, he doesn't stay off in heaven, but he becomes man. He comes in our midst. The great Advent truth that God has come to us. Remember the reassurance given to Joseph? Mary will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. We're actually going to come back to this passage in a few weeks. But Advent and Christmas means God with us, God in our midst. Remember how John puts it at the beginning of his gospel? And the Word, the eternal Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one can see God and live, but the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us that we might see God in him. And it's not just that by becoming human, Jesus shows us God in a way we can see. God with us, taking our nature to himself, lifts human nature and sustains and sanctifies human nature from birth to life to death, to the grave, it's sanctified because God takes human nature to himself. God with us, the Advent miracle is like a burst of energy 
and life into the very middle of the human race. In Christ, God gives himself to us as our God, and we are united to him. Jesus came to make at-one-ment, atonement. And then Paul stresses also from the human side, Jesus comes to keep the covenant commands. Theologians describe this as Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. He actively submitted to God's will by keeping all the commands, and he passively, this is what the word passion for Holy Week, the passion of Christ refers to, he passively submits to punishment. Paul brings both these sides of Christ's covenant obedience out. His active obedience. Contrast for a moment the story Paul tells about Jesus here in Philippians to the story of Adam. Adam was created after God's own likeness and invited to live in life-sustaining relationship with God. And yet, what does he do? He grasps after equality with God. He eats the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to try and become like God. He tries to elevate himself. And yet, by doing so, falls into sin and rebellion and brokenness. The Son of God, who is in the very form of God, doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but descends and takes the form of a servant. And being found in human nature, he doesn't try to work his way back up to being godlike. No, he descends even further. He humbles himself by being obedient, descending even to the point of death. Christ, fully God, fully man, he lives the life of faithful, trusting obedience that each of us ought to live in relationship to God. The life Adam was meant to live. Not that God's original purpose was for people to die like Christ, certainly not, but rather in this broken world that we find ourselves in, living in perfect, faithful obedience to God leads to death. It cannot be tolerated by our broken, rebellious world. But even though obedience is now so much harder, even though it leads to death, Jesus doesn't give up. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death. He doesn't stop short. He's obedient to the very end, faithful to the end. And this is the passive obedience that Christ suffers and is acted upon in the passion. We can't help but see a cross like this as a Christian symbol. It reminds us of Jesus Christ. But in Jesus' day, death on a cross had totally different connotations. It was a sign of Rome's power. And Deuteronomy 21 says that everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. And so it's likely that many Jews in Paul's day would have drawn the same connection between crucifixion and God's curse that Paul himself draws in Galatians 3. God would die such a horrifying death unless they were cursed. But our passage also brings to mind another Old Testament passage. It reminds us of Isaiah's in Isaiah 53. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We esteemed him. We think about him as being cursed by God. And indeed, he is cursed by God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of man and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah provides us with a key to understanding how the obedience to the point of death on a cross is looking to our interests. It is a vicarious suffering, a substitute, suffering in our place. 
Adam grasped after equality with God and so was banished from the garden and from the tree of life. Christ was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was hung on a tree and so cursed by God, and yet the cross, the tree of curse, becomes for us a tree of life so that we might eat its fruit and have life abundantly. Jesus came to make atonement, to fulfill both sides of the covenant, to establish it. But the story of Jesus doesn't end there. The third aspect of Jesus' mission that we see in our passage is that Jesus came to win a great victory. Jesus came to win a great victory. In Paul and Jesus' day, the cross was a symbol of Roman power and authority. Crucifixion was a horrible, painful death, but beyond sheer torture, it was designed to humiliate. A man was crucified naked, exposed, would lose control of his bodily functions, would die broken, defeated, humiliated. It was such a shameful death that a Roman citizen would never be executed by crucifixion. In the ancient world, the cross meant Caesar is Lord, and if you defy his authority, this is where you end up. This is how Rome maintained peace, by claiming absolute authority over the bodies and lives of those under their rule. And so a crucified Lord was unimaginable in the ancient world. A crucified God was simply absurd. In fact, the earliest known depiction of Christ's crucifixion is a piece of graffiti from about 200 that says, Alexamenos worships God. And it shows a picture of a Christian worshiping a man with a donkey head nailed to a cross. That's what the pagan world sees in the proclamation of the good news that Christ died on the cross for us. It's absurd. What else can you do but mock it? And yet Paul says at the very extremity of humiliation, in, hu in becoming humble on the cross, Christ wins a great victory. Here is the true Lord who doesn't crucify those who oppose him like Caesar, but dies the rebel's death in his enemy's place to bring true peace on earth. In obedience to the point of death, the one who is in the form of God, who emptied himself, who became a servant, and in the form of a servant reveals the glory of God as he dies on a cross. And so even the centurion who oversees this crucifixion says, surely this was a son of God. Of course, he didn't have the incarnation all worked out. He doesn't know fully God, fully man, all of that. But he sees the divine glory shining through a dying, humiliated man. And so the cross, the sign of Roman authority and power, is now transformed as the sign of Christ's authority and power. And so God highly exalts Jesus as the great victor and bestows on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Paul describes Jesus' exaltation, he's quoting Isaiah 45, 23. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. This line comes from a prophecy where God says, when I deliver my people, when I save them, it will become clear to all the earth that I am the Savior God and there is no other. God, when he saves his people, will be seen to be God alone. There is no other, no God beside him. And so the line just before this, God invites 
uh, calls out, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And now Paul is saying, in the crucifixion, in Christ breathing his last breath on the cross, that work of salvation is happening. That victory is happening. Where the true God, the covenant God of Israel, is proved to be the God of all the earth. There is no other, no God beside him. Jesus came as an example of humility and radical obedience. An example we're called to follow, but we don't follow by our own strength. The engine of this whole thing is the work Christ has already done on our behalf. In humility, Jesus came to make atonement, taking on himself both sides of the covenant, to be God with us and to be the faithful servant who is obedient to the end. The faithful servant who suffers vicariously to reconcile us to God. But this death is no defeat. It is a great victory. Death is defeated. The power of sin is broken. The pretensions of human lords and Caesars are unmasked. Jesus Christ is shown to be the true Lord, the covenant God of Israel, come to save his people. So turn to him and be saved. That is our true hope. That we follow Christ's example only by living in union with him. Our covenant Lord, come to make atonement. Let us pray. Lord, as we consider your word this morning, I hope that your mission, the mission that Jesus came, what he came to do is more clear to us. Thank you. Thank you that although you were in the form of God, you emptied yourself by taking the form of a servant and that you were perfectly obedient as we ought to have been in our place and that you suffered vicariously the death that we deserved as our substitute. Thank you that that's not the end of the story, but that you are the exalted Lord seated in heaven, the Lord who rules over all things. May we come to you then as faithful servants, following your example, marked by your name called Christian, living as your love in us overflows to others. May we be humble seeing our value in you giving your life for us. Even this day, begin or continue the work of transforming us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.